Welcome to Seismic Sound Off, exploring the depth and usefulness of geophysics for the scientific community and the public. I'm your host, Andrew Gary. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Eli Plume Ablajiku and Abdul Rashid to discuss their Geoscientists Without Borders project, Provision of Potable Water to Communities in Northeastern Ghana. This GWB project will directly help two communities located in northeastern Ghana. One, by locating potable water to prevent exposure to diseases like cholera and dysentery, and the other by the provision of boreholes in what is considered the food basket of Ghana, thus enabling them to engage in year-round irrigation farming to improve their economic fortunes and sustenance for themselves and their livestock. Eli Plume and Rashid explain why groundwater is of growing importance in the food basket of Ghana as rainwater gets more difficult to predict. Eli Plume highlights the value of combining community knowledge with scientifically tested methods to be successful. Rashid explores why groundwater has been an overlooked resource in Ghana, and they both discuss the importance of respecting the culture where scientific work occurs. While the audio quality at times is not ideal, Please give this episode a listen from beginning to end if you can. This is a powerful story on the power of geophysics, how to gain support from local communities, and the difference science can make in people's lives. Visit seg.org podcast to find the link to learn more about Ellie Plume's project and to donate to GWB. And now, my conversation with Ellie Plume and Rashid. So let's start kind of with the basics of this Geoscientists Without Borders project. What do you hope to achieve with your GWB project? Well, simply to give people water. You go to their communities and you see how they struggle with access to clean water. So with the GW project, I just want to give them water in close proximity to their homes that they can use for domestic purposes and also for agricultural Purposes. I must mention that the areas we worked in are actually farming communities, but they rely mostly on rain-fed agriculture. So when we have the dry seasons or the periods where there's no rain, then there's not much activity. And with the changing patterns in rainfall, you realize that they're not able to predict the cycles as well as they used to. So sometimes they plant and they are crops end up dying because it's not, it doesn't have enough water. So groundwater offers a good support when um, they can't really predict the rainfall patterns as they used to in the past. What grabbed your attention to work on this GWB project with Ellie? So when I saw an advertisement for this project, I decided to jump on it because of where the project is being cited and when you look at the living conditions of the people there and the lack of water for those people that made me to try and help out as much as I can contribute as a student. So Ellie, we'll, we'll go back to you. Can you kind of paint a little picture, describe these two communities in Northeastern Ghana that are the focus of this GWB project? Okay, so the two communities are actually a little different from each other. So the first community is called Salinria, and for them, they really don't have access to water. They need to walk or ride their bikes for miles before they are able to get water from a nearby borehole. 
The second community is Zaslai. They have water, but the problem has to do with the quality of water. So the purpose was really to provide water for the first community, obviously good quality water, and then for the second community, try and see if we can use geophysics to understand what was happening with their water. At which level would they get good water and try and access quality water at that level for them. One thing that, that particularly struck me in your GWB project was the the pictures of the water that these communities use. And just for the listeners, you know, they were it was brown, cloudy. There's debris floating in it. There's animals floating in some of the water. What do the people in these communities have to do to be able to use the water they, they currently have before this project safely? So, well, depending on the purpose, they'll just use the water, the water as it is. Sometimes when you leave the water to settle, you realize that you'd have the debris going to the bottom and then they can pick from the top. Unfortunately, some people have developed some sort of resistance to turbid water. So they are still able to drink it, sometimes use it for cooking. They, they don't really treat the water. There's no really system, maybe a filtration system that they have where they treat the water, no. So if you look at the areas that we went they are very arid environments. You can't imagine how they can get access to quality water when there is dry season. So everywhere there, the first impression I got was this area and the way things are dry here, would we be able to hit water? Because the geology of the area dictates that the place is very, very wetted and it will be very difficult to hit water when we drilled. Dr. Elliot and Abdul's talking about it there. You know, several boreholes had been drilled in, the, in these areas and they were dry wells. Why has there before this project been, you know, just a, a poor understanding of the geology and hydrogeology in, in this part of the world? So I think it really has to do with information and how we slightly treasure information. You have a lot of people drilling boreholes, but most of them don't really have a background in geology, geophysics, or hydrogeology. They just pick as they go along. So they drill boreholes and they don't hit water, but they don't provide any information on what they did. So that progressively builds you know, knowledge of what is good and what is not good. So you realize that in a lot of the areas, you as a researcher are going in more or less blind. I mean, there are a lot of boreholes, but you really don't have any sort of information to rely on. Another thing is, not really a lot of people have been interested in the science of borehole drilling. It's just, I need water. But there's a science to it. So I, I think that that's the reason why we are still sort of in the baby stage of um, developing groundwater, especially in that area of Ghana. Abdul, what was it like, you know, bringing in these geophysical tools and equipment to use for this project? And, you know, maybe these communities were, were seeing this for the first time, you know, what was it like bringing in this kind of scientific materials into these communities? I must say it was really exciting in the first place because me as a student have not come across this kind of instrumentation even though I've learned them theoretically in class 
I've not come across them. That was my first time. So I was able to apply some of my knowledge that I knew to be able to operate with the help of my lecturer, Dr. Yoni, to operate some of them. And the community, when they saw the tools, they were somewhere really excited, somewhere also skeptical because some were really into their traditional way of drilling for world. So they saw and some two were really excited because they've not seen such sophisticated instrument before. So it was really exciting for me. You know, speaking of that, you're in two different communities. So I would imagine it's it's already kind of a difficult undertaking to get the community on board and have them understand. But now you're working with two different communities. How did you address the challenge of of getting them to understand the work you are trying to do and, and the benefits you were trying to bring to the community? So in the first place, we're welcome with open arms because when they saw us, they knew we were coming to solve problems in their communities. They were really struggling to find clean potable water to use. So when they saw us, they were really excited and some were able to help us in employing some of our methods, such as the we use the ER method, the electrical resisting method. So some were able to help us hammer the electrodes in the ground some also helped us in various ways as they can. So they were really excited. Dr. Ellie, anything to add there? Yeah, so one of the first things we did, and this was because we know that we're going into a very traditional setting. So we're going into rural areas, and there's always a way in which you enter those communities. So you need to look for, if it's a chief or if it's the village elder, you need to speak with him because it's their land. Even though you are trying to do something good for them, you can't just enter. So, and one of the first things that we did was when we entered the community, we asked for the person in charge and we spoke with the person and we explained the reason for our visits. And because they realized that it was a project for their well-being, or it would help them, they welcomed us with open arms, like um, Rashid said. And we really, really had a lot of goodwill from the people helping, you know, the geophysical tools with all the cables and carrying and hammering and all that. So we had a lot of the locals helping us to do the work, and they were very, very enthusiastic about it. I want to zoom out for a second on this question. On March 22nd, the UN is going to celebrate World Water Day. And the Sustainable Development Goals is something the SEG has been talking a lot about over the last couple of years. And number six is about water and sanitation for all by 2030. But the UN is talking about how they're pretty far away from, they're off track on reaching this goal. What do you see as some of the reasons that the global community is off track to meeting this water and sanitation for all by 2030? I would use the situation in Ghana as an example. And I think that there's really a disconnect between those who are actually trying to provide water and then the government, local governments, those who are in charge of policy. So we have a lot of people drilling boreholes. And if it's not a concerted effort between the local governments and those individuals, you can't have a system that provides for everybody. Okay, so you have a lot of individuals just trying to do small things and it can't cover the full population. Drilling a borehole is quite expensive. So if it's not coming from the government and it's 
locals, how many people can actually access that resource. And something I alluded to earlier was data. We can only do this better if we have more information. So those in charge, how are they trying to collect all the data that individuals have with them? So that together we know that, okay, for this local government, we need to structure policy in a certain way. Maybe we need to just look for one very good well and have a community water system. Or we probably need to, maybe the geology will not allow us to have a very high yielding well, but can we drill a number of wells and have a centralized system of distribution? We have regions or areas where in the dry season, it's so dry. In the wet season, we have so much flooding. What about recharge? Can we do something like artificial recharge for the communities or rainfall harvesting? And these things need to be on a, on a community scale for it to actually have some impacts, not just individuals doing it in their homes. So I think that we really need to focus on what the local government are doing and also um, feed that into policy. What policy can we establish that will guide this and really, really be strict on collecting data because we can only learn from our mistakes. If we always start from ground zero, then we are really not improving or trying to meet the targets. We are always starting, always doing something when that really shouldn't be the case. To add to what Dr. Ali said, I think Ghana as a country, we are not really utilizing groundwater. We are so fixated on the use of surface water and purification methods that we have neglected exploration for groundwater. Because if, let's say, for example, the Ghana Water Company has a setup on their own, an organization that are solely into groundwater analysis, exploration, and drilling, I think it will be much easier for everybody to have access to quality water without having been able to put money to purify it and do all sorts of processes before it goes to people's houses. So I think when we add groundwater in addition to the exploration of surface water and purification methods, I think more people will have access to quality water. That's a great addition there. I appreciate that. And... And Dr. Ali, going back to you, you know, what inspired you to, to take on this challenge of global water quality, or at least, you know, the improved water quality in Ghana? I really got exposed to the problem of access to groundwater when I was doing my PhD. So I worked in the area. Previously, I hadn't really had um, the opportunity to go to the northeastern part of Ghana. And there is a stark difference between what is there and what um, we see in the south. So I am in the capital, which is more towards the south. And it hits you. I mean, you see people carrying gallons. You see people fetching water that really shouldn't be the case. I mean, I, I remember once I went to, I was waiting for something in one of the communities. And I was offered water. And traditionally, I can't refuse the water because if I do, it's insulting. <laughs> and you have to drink it. And as you're drinking, you're just thinking about, wow, I'm drinking this. And this is what they have. That is all they have every day. I had, I mean, I had better. 
So if I have a skill or I have a tool that can help, you know, a piece at a time to help people get a better life, I think that's, that's really the purpose for which we are here. Rashi, did you know that groundwater is kind of being an overlooked resource uh, before this project? Yes. For my knowledge, I think we are not exploring it now because as I started learning geophysics, I, I realized they are more into mineral exploration, petroleum, gas exploration, onshore, offshore exploration, and I didn't realize we could use geophysics to explore for groundwater until I went further in my studies, let's say level 300, level 400, and I realized, oh, we can use it to also get water for your house. And when I saw the project, I was really excited because, as they say, water is life. So when you do something, you learn something as skill and use it to provide service for the community, I think it's naturally is fulfilling. Wonderfully said about geophysics there. I appreciate that. You know, Dr. Ellie, we've we've featured several episodes centered on addressing global water needs. And is there something you think kind of gets frequently overlooked or should just be emphasized more stronger in this conversation about bringing better water quality to the world? Well, I think the first thing is um, it's not a one-size-fits-all we, we don't have a one-size-fits-all solution. So we, we need to recognize that in for each community we work in, we need to see what fits them best. Aside from the science, we also need to take into consideration the culture. One of the communities we worked in, a number of people had come to drill boreholes, and the people have a certain belief, and that belief was disregarded by almost all of them. So you realize that when you speak with them, they'll say, oh, this person came to drill. We told the person not to go here, but the person said this way they are going, and they hit bad water. So one thing that we purposed to do was to listen to them, to listen to them. And then we tried to apply science to the traditional knowledge that we have. So the people believe that when there's a certain plant, Wherever that plant grows, you would have good quality water. So they took us to where the plant grows, and we did our sighting, and we drilled. And we got very good yields. So I think that even as scientists, even though we think probably we have a lot of um, tested methods, we can't really throw the culture and tradition of people we want to help away. We really need to keep that in mind. So it depends on wherever you find yourself. You just need to make sure that you do what you want to do, but you respect the culture of the people as you do it. That's wonderfully said there. So uh, to kind of the fun, exciting parts, what have been some of the, the highlight accomplishments so far in this project? I think that it's seeing people happy when you get water. <laughs> when you're pumping and you see the water, and we are so excited. I mean, the, the most fulfilling thing that you can see in this or you can get in this project. Rushdie, would you echo that? You know, what has been your, your favorite accomplishment so far in this project? Just seeing people smile when we hit water. So I realized, I remember, I probably remember when the drilling machine 
hit what uh, the kind of excitement you saw on people's faces. They were really happy. Even at the first time when the water was popping out, the first water wasn't really that clear. They brought their buckets, their storage device to come and just collect any water at all because they were really excited. They don't have to go on long trips to get this kind of bad water. So even when we told them to settle down for the real good water to come, then we started pumping test. They were really excited. So they started collecting. As soon as the water started popping out, they started collecting. Yes. Yeah, that instant feedback must be so, so wonderful to be a part of uh, when you're there. You know, Dr. Elliot, what key discoveries or questions do you still have for understanding how best to bring water to these two communities? So we still don't really understand the geology of the area very well. In certain areas, you need to drill very deep to get water. In other areas, you can just do a shallow well, maybe 30, 40 meters, and you get good water that is um, quite sustainable, even through the, the dry season and the wells recover well. So um, something like borehole geophysics is another thing I'm excited about because it helps us to better constrain the geology um, of the subsurface. And gradually, as we build knowledge, we'll be able to understand more in specific areas how deep do we need to go? How do we tie in the borehole geophysical signatures to the 2D profiles that we get from when we do the 2D surveys on the surface? Because the borehole gives us better detail. What do you, yeah, this is the both of you, uh, Dr. Ali, you could, you could start. What do you hope will be the legacy of this project in these two communities? I just hope that every time we see the wells, they are reminded that there are people who actually care for them or there are people who actually care that they have water or they have something good. You know, sometimes when you're in the rural areas, you really wonder whether people, you know, down south or in the towns consider how you live, whether they care about it. So I just hope that every time they see the boreholes, they should know that someone cares, someone is willing to help them get a better life. Yeah, so usually, you know, when you go to school, you go to learn a particular course, come out and apply and get for your personal gain, for your enrichment, where you get employed, get money, and you live your life. So for me, I think the legacy will be just the fulfillment of just applying the small knowledge I got in school to be able to help with this project. So. When I get so, let's say something takes me into that community, I'm able to say, oh, I learned this in school. I'm able to contribute and give this for quality water. So just choosing what I did in school to help for people to benefit out of it, I think that will be a fulfilling legacy for me. Is there anything that, that I should have asked that I did not? I would just like to add something, the relevance of the project. I mean, aside from providing water to the communities, it really is as a result of climate change. In times past, the farmers could actually predict when to plant. They would know that, okay, May 15th, I need to plant. 
And they know that after planting in two or three days, it's going to rain. And it's going to rain for maybe two months. So my crops can um, mature, grow and everything. But now they can't do that. And it really just means that we need to be more intentional about how we address their issues. Okay, we can't just leave it to individuals who probably get some funding once in a while to do something. And the funny thing is that that is the food basket of Ghana. That is where most of our crops come from. So if we don't have a plan in place to really have sustainable agriculture there, probably through irrigation, then you can imagine what problems we'll be facing down the line. <laughs> and it's already started. So things like tomatoes, onions, we now need to import them. But the solution really is in trying to get them water. And now that you're, you're bringing water to these communities, just think about the long game there and the hard work is clearly paying off. So I appreciate the two of you discussing this project and hope that the next 30% of the project goes, goes even better than, than the first 70%. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I'd just like to say thank you to SEG, GWB. We wouldn't be here without their funding. And it's, I know it's from donations. So thank you to the companies and individuals who donate for us to be able to do this work. We are really grateful for that. Aside from providing relief, it was also an opportunity to learn for our students and also for the researchers on the project as well. So we are grateful for that. And thank you, Andrew. Um, I hope that the podcast helps people to see what opportunities there are to employ science to help people, especially in the field of providing water to people. You reached the end of Seismic Sound Off. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to be the first to know about the next episode, please follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Two of my favorites are Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you have episode ideas, feedback for the show, or want to sponsor a future episode, visit seg.org slash podcast and find the box titled Contact Seismic Sound Off. Zach Bridges created original music for this show. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary at Treasurement. The SEG podcast team is Jennifer Cobb, Kathy Gamble, and Allie McGinnis. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.